Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We're back. Just a quick review for those of you who may not have been with us on our last trek through Russia circa 1812. We are a show that takes up big books, the kind that are big enough that carrying them around in your knapsack is a little bit of a chore. And we walk (laughs) through them. If you will. A bite at a time, right? How do we eat an elephant, folks? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. Were we supposed to do that in unison? I'm sorry. That's okay. It's all right. We're, we are going to start biting again today. We're so excited <laughs> to introduce our new novel to you. It is the classic Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Cue clapping. Are you guys excited? Yes. So excited. Oh, of course. I'm a huge fan of the Broadway show and the movie, the more recent movie. I mean, I think yeah. I like all of the adaptations that I've heard, and I've never gone back to the to the source and actually read the original. So this is going to be fun. I know. This is both very much like what we did last time around with Tolstoy's War and Peace, because we all loved the BBC adaptation of War and Peace, as you returning listeners know, and then decided, let's, you know, let's read the real novel. And it's a little bit like that here, except that the vast majority of the world knows about the storyline of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. At least they're familiar in some way. And very, 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 very few of them have actually read the novel. So I think that's really interesting and is a little bit of a contrast. Not a lot of people know the plot of War and Peace. They just know the title and they know that it's really long and hard and they don't really think about it again. But this is this has penetrated way farther into popular consciousness, I think. I think you're right. I mean, it's going to be hard to not make this a sing-along. I know. We haven't sung yet. I'm just counting down. At some point, (laughs) somebody is going to sing. We won't be able to help it. So true. Well, let's start. Let's do some background personally first, right? We've got some fun things to say about the history and situating the novel in its time and place. But I want to start by hearing from both of you about how you know this story and what your own personal experience with it is that might make you want to pick up a novel this long. And also, I mean, just to add to that, your your question, I think that maybe it would be worthwhile if we introduced ourselves again, because I think we do actually have people joining us who did not join us last time. Of so. course. They might not know who we are. Well, Emily, why don't you kick that off? Yeah, how about you? How did you get us started there, Emily? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm Emily. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well done, Megan. Hello, Emily. (laughs) Hello, Emily. (laughs) We we all share a last name. Emily is my wife. My name is Ian. I'm your host. And these other two are my co-hosts, my wife, Emily, and my sister, Megan. Hello. And together we are the How to Eat an Elephant team, although that's hard to say. And so we just call ourselves, hey. Or the elephant eaters. You call us the elephant eaters a lot. That's true. That's true. We are we are eating elephants. Yep. Well, with the introductions out of the way, what's the background that you guys have with this story? Are we story? not going to tell them anything about ourselves? I feel like there's there's nothing. We're just some names. We're just some floating names. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, sure. 
Also, this is par for the course, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to get this get kind of it. good-natured ribbing back and forth all the time. Um, why doesn't one of you go ahead and host this section? And we'll just, yeah. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. I'm not going to host this section, but I do think they should know a little <laughs> bit about us. We are actually all teachers, so that's why the the intense nerdiness about reading closely and why we wanted to do a podcast like this in the first place. Um, I teach primarily elementary and junior high kids. So I will come to you with a, a good amount of low class humor every once in a while because of the people that I hang out with. So that's probably the tone I'm going to bring to the show. It's a little bit of levity and maybe some uh, junior high humor. Hey, man, I think Victor Hugo was interested in painting the whole sweep of the human experience. So uh, I'm Emily and I am married to Ian and we are we do a little less teaching, but we are all trained as I was just thinking about this, that yeah. we're trained as generalists, right? Like we're yeah. not coming here and saying we're experts in French literature, just like we weren't experts in Russian literature. Right, exactly. But what we are experts in is good reading. We've spent our careers doing that. And so it, this show has a little bit of a different flavor than, say, like a Mike Duncan's Revolutions, right? We're not sitting down to lecture no. about the book as much as we're a an extension of a virtual book club that includes yes. lots of hundreds of members all around the world. And we just are the ones who get to talk about it out loud. <laughs> Our members in their dozens are all around the world. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's good. That's that's a good detail to have. We definitely are not posing as experts here, except in the art of looking closely and understanding what, what is sitting in front of us. I am fascinated, though, to be tackling a work that was originally written in French. I had a French minor in college and got to read some French literature in its original language. Much shorter pieces, ladies and gentlemen. But it is <laughs> really fun because the French culture is deeply ingrained into their literature. And so there are things mm. that are quintessentially French that I think we're going to rub shoulders with in this story that I'm excited to recognize from my college days. I'm excited too. I think that you should look at the original French every once in a while. Tell yeah. us what's going on. No kidding. Absolutely. We've all had we've all dabbled in French, but none of us have gone so far as <laughs> you have. We've all dabbled in French. So Ian and Megan both actually learned French in school. My school made us take Spanish. Learned, learned is a really strong it's word very, for what very I broad. French. Yeah. yeah. And Megan had a minor. And I have a 642-day streak on Duolingo in French. Nice. 600 and how many? Oh, my word. So if we want to know about lots la pomme or freezes. la pomme de terre, Emily's the one. <laughs> I can I can say I ate the apple. Yep. I can say You can ask I, for directions to the library. I That's the like main to thing study. you can do. I can ask you where the bathroom is. <laughs> I just think all of those are very serviceable little phrases. I'm not sure why they want you to talk about apples so much as they do on Duolingo, but it is like the noun oh, of choice. I do. Yeah. It's because it's a fun word to say. The poem. poem. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. Okay. We've veered off into crazy territory here. So I'm going to restate the question again for the third time now. What is your background with this novel? Why did we pick it? And I want to hear from each of you individually, so I don't care who goes first, but, but go ahead. Well, I'll go first. I... So I did not hear about Les Miserables until I was probably a sophomore in college when one of my really good friends said, hey, the Broadway show is coming to my hometown, which like was a couple hours drive from where we went to school. 
And she was like, I'd love for y'all to come with me to go see it. And I had no idea about it. I had never heard of it before. Did you look it up first or did you just no, go? No, I just went. That's so awesome. For your <laughs> so, first experience to be a live Broadway show, get out of here. Yeah. So we went and I saw the show. It was before, it was back when they still had the set that was the rotating set. Yeah. Um, oh, instead yeah, the of real one. Yeah. The one now they have the panels that open and close, but it was the rotating set. So it was really cool. Of the barricade, she means, ladies and gentlemen. Of the barricade. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. The barricade rotated around. And let's see. So I saw it and loved it. And it was amazing. And then a little later, a couple years later, when we were still in school, the movie came out. And maybe that was even the same year. But I went with friends to go see the movie with Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. (laughs) Um. And that was also great. And so when we graduated from college and Ian and I got married, the summer afterwards, I decided that I really loved this show and I thought I would try to read the book. And I started and was really confused because it had, as far as I could tell, absolutely nothing to do with Jean Valjean. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm prepared now for that, but I got I got a couple hundred pages in and then I don't know. I was newly married and didn't have a lot of headspace and so I didn't keep going. So I am excited to follow again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Megan, what about you? Well, I identify with a lot of the the segments of Emily's journey. I personally encountered the musical, the Broadway musical, when I was very, very young, as Ian did as well. Our dad was a huge fan of Les Mis specifically, and I have a very vivid memory. I was probably about nine, and dad was watching the anniversary recording of the original cast of Les Mis, 10th anniversary, with Colm Wilkinson as Jean Valjean with this beautiful transcendent tenor voice. And it was, in my memory, we were watching the scene where Eponine, it's like a little fall of rain, and Eponine is dying in Marius's arms, like it's like very dramatic, and like, you know, this is a heartfelt moment full of pathos, right? Right. And I'm super confused, because I'm too young, frankly, to be watching this. And I am just interrupting dad over and over again, what the heck is happening? And mostly was very concerned that Marius was being unfaithful. Like, here's this, <laughs> he had just pronounced that he was in love with Cosette, and now this other woman is like dying in his arms, and he's like totally into it, and is like speaking words of love to her, and I was so confused. And I just remember this vivid moment where dad turns to me and goes, Megan, I will answer your questions later, but this is a very powerful moment, and you're interrupting. <laughs> I was like, I just think my moral compass is better than that. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's funny. So I'm excited no to read happened. this book and find out a little bit more of Marius's reasoning for, frankly, cheating on Cosette. Okay? <laughs> that's great. Oh my word. Well, I don't have a lot to add to Megan's presentation. I mean, like she said, we grew up with Les Mis playing around the house all the time. And my dad not only loved the musical, but wrote musicals himself when he was coming along through college. And so the whole house was full of musicals all of the time. And and we knew all the words by heart long before we'd actually seen a production of Les Mis. We would listen to it straight through on this two CD set. Yep. And the, and one day more happened at the break and we'd go switch CDs and listen to the back half. There were a couple songs we weren't allowed to listen to because they were too six, raunchy. Lovely Ladies, the kids. <laughs> not <Track> allowed. number <laughs> six, can't listen to Lovely Ladies. It was like that it, from when we were small, small children. So by the time 
I got to college and that film came out, still at that point had not seen a stage production of Les Mis. Somehow we made it to a couple of other Broadway shows. I think we saw, shoot, what's the name of, Yeah, it'll come to me. Anyway, we saw some other Broadway shows, but that one never came through. And so I had, I somehow made it to adulthood, loving Les Mis and knowing every single word of the musical without ever seeing it. First production I saw was the film with Hugh Jackman. And I was comparing him constantly. To Colm Wilkinson. To Colm Wilkinson, which is, I'm sure, what everybody does. And finally, Emily got me tickets to see Les Mis, and we, we saw it from the Nosebleeds, a, oh, a touring word. Broadway production. Oh, my word. This is worth a story. This is worth yes. a story. I took yeah. Ian to see it, and it came through Spokane. So it's always like, I don't know, by the time Broadway gets this far out here, it's kind of a little worse for the wear sometimes. But anyway, it was <laughs> They're tired. Great. They're at the <laughs> end of the run. Yeah. And we were up in the nosebleeds. It was so hot. Oh, my word. It, it was, was like a million hot. degrees. And we were sweating. And it was just horrible and stuffy. And so we were already uncomfortable. But then we were sitting in front of this elderly couple <laughs> who were, I'm sure, lovely people. But they, I don't think that the husband had ever seen Les Mis before. And so he kept asking really loud questions like, Hey, is that the girl who was the little girl? Is that the same girl? Is, she or is that a big? new girl? <laughs> or is that yes. a new girl? I thought she died. Oh, it was man. like that at the top of his lungs. Oh, and no. bless his heart. I'm sure he was just hard of hearing and didn't know how loud he was talking. But like, And it's hard to follow a storyline in a musical. Here's what I'll say, though. Despite right the interruptions, it was still one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. So I am likewise excited to dive into the novel. The last detail I'll offer is that I went far enough into the musical to have an opinion about which recording and which cast each track was best. <laughs> so I went through and I put together a YouTube playlist nice. from six different six different recorded performances. Is this available you content? Did? Can I watch listeners? That? If I can dig it up, I'll try. I don't I don't remember <laughs> if it's still in my account, but I'll go look because it was it's I was choosing from like six different performances and I was cobbling together the best rendition of each song so that I could listen to the whole thing with my favorite versions. So I come to this with a deep love of the story. But as we're going to talk about next, I think that everyone should, by the way, if you've got, oh, how do I even describe this edition? The Signet Classics edition, the paperback. You should go in and read the forward and the afterward. We're going to talk about them today, but both of them are great pieces of writing and do a really good job, I think, of setting the novel up. But the, one of the first things that happens in this forward is, is the guy makes the point that the musical is faithful. So faithful, in fact, to the plot details that there's not a whole lot negative to say about it, but it lacks depth and nuance specifically because they had to stick to the plot. And the plot is frankly not the most important thing going on in Les Mis, which is, which is really exciting to me. I, I'm so, so stoked to dig into the back matter and the front matter and all of the things mm -hmm. that lie beneath the plot of the story. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to get a taste of the politics and the French culture that I was talking about before. I think all of Victor Hugo's background is going to come to bear on the way that he sets up the plot that we're so familiar with. And I'm excited to get to kind of immerse myself in the France of his era. And I think that we should be aware going in that he was very progressive. I hope we talk about him a little bit more in today's podcast. I think we will. But he's got a, a political axe he's sharpening through the whole book that I think we are probably going to trace. I think looking at this book through the comparing it to War and Peace in some ways is kind of an interesting lens to look at it through. There was this line in the introduction that said, 
it's describing an emotional scene in the book, and it says, This highly emotional scene, followed by less intense, discursive chapters on the ecclesiastic attitudes of the time, demonstrates Hugo's deliberate method of alternating dramatic action and passages of historic background. Yeah. And I wrote... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. have been there before. Tolstoy and Hugo should have been friends. <laughs> but then also later it goes on to say, it scarcely matters that many of the names and events recalled by Hugo so much later are now unknown and some are even correct, incorrect. Mm-hmm. So unlike Tolstoy, Hugo didn't super care about how accurate his facts were because he's not writing about history. His goals are more like socio-political. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, if we if we talk about genre for a minute, he was intending to write a work of romanticism. So that heightened emotion, that impassioned narrative that you were talking about just a minute ago, that's his goal is to stir up the pathos of his audience and provide mm. you with an experience so that you will change your political leanings, etc. Right. But he's working within the romanticism genre to stir up your heart. And have you have an emotional response to the moment. Our forward, again, does such a great job of encouraging you as a reader to bear with him through these these wild flights of emotion. I'm thinking of the line at the very end. It says, if the heightened rhetoric of elation and despair occasionally strains our patience or credulity, the quiet perception on the next page generally restores it. So in other words, I underline uh, that one too. A charge so for patience in us to to treat this work as a whole, and uh, I don't know, put the wilder flights of fancy in perspective. So Emily, I know you did a little bit of reading about Hugo and the and the history of his life. What are the pertinent details for us to be aware of? Oh man, well, so I'm I have picked up a biography that I will show the camera for those watching. It's called Victor Hugo: A Biography. It's by Graham <laughs> Stirringly <Rob>. titled. <laughs> Looks like this. And it says it was, according to the New York Times, it was one of the 11 best books of 1998. Wow. So there you go. Is that Victor Hugo's profile right there? Oh, no, it's just half there of his go. face. There we go. Just half of his face. Uh, so far, it's really good. I started it. The writing is really fun and engaging. But basically, and I'll know more as we go on and I continue to read it, but the portrait that he's painting of Victor Hugo is one of a very mixed character, yes. which our foreword does kind of clue us into a little bit too. But um, he was he was very concerned with mythologizing his own life in some ways. He had very inauspicious start, a very inauspicious start. Yeah, he really struggled with his family life. His parents divorced when he was quite young. Uh, of course, unusual for the time, although perhaps not in revolutionary France. But he really struggled as he was coming along and he was made fun of by his brothers. And he, throughout his life, kind of had this dual personality where he was super interested in ideals and uh, that his romanticism right he advocated for universal suffrage and the end of capital punishment and prison reform and he was very progressive in his ideals where that was concerned and was a great lover of the idea of innocence mm-hmm. on the one hand and on the other hand he was kind of a, a profligate he had multiple mistresses he was unfaithful to his wife very early on. And so he did not necessarily live by the kind of moral code that he advocated in his writing. Hmm. 
So a, a further question, and maybe we can't answer this yet, but it's one of the ones that is no doubt going to come up. Every adaptation of Les Mis has as sort of a salvific figure, a priest. And the church and Christianity more broadly are a huge part of, of the thematic current of the story. Where does Hugo fall on that whole conversation as an individual? Do we know? Well, it's interesting. He, in his own mythology of himself, he liked to say that he was born into a split household, that his mother was a conservative Catholic royalist, and his father was a revolutionary who who really did serve under Bonaparte as an officer. And the problem is that it's not entirely true. His mother was actually part of a family that did serve the Republicans, and the revolutionaries and had to flee their hometown because it was mostly a conservative hometown. Mm. And later on, as she uh, as she split from his father, did kind of begin to tell her children a, a lie about that, that she, she wanted to distance herself ideologically from her husband in that way. So he always saw himself as kind of divided. And I think his loyalties are, are kind of split. Hmm. When it comes, he he served under a, a king, the constitutionalist king, and then was exiled when the more conservative king rose to power again. And then, of course, in his writing, he's advocating for the Republicans. I don't know; it's it's all very complicated. His politics and ideas are all quite complicated, and I'm not sure he knew entirely what he thought. But when it comes to the church, I think the same thing that I said for where his morality kind of holds true too. It does seem like in his ideals, he was very pro-church. At least in his writing. But do you mean to imply that he was conflicted in his life? So I have no idea. I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I'll have to to keep reading, but I don't know. A couple other details just that about his personal life that I found fascinating in the foreword of our book. He fell madly in love with a girl that his brother also fell madly in love with. So they were both in love with the same girl. Hugo won her in the end. And on their wedding day, his brother went mad. So I circled that too. <laughs> there was all kinds of like drama. And then, so then it gets worse. He and his wife are married for a time. And then doesn't she cheat on him with his brother? No. Maybe I got I the French so. names mixed up. Well, she, she is unfaithful to him. Yes, uh, thereby destroying his like idealistic version of marriage in his mind. And from there, he basically devolves into a wastrel. A wastrel. Yeah. And he's got a different woman every year for the rest of his life. But it's like this ideal of faithfulness and true love is still there in his mind, but it was shattered because of his early marriage experience. But I can just see, just as we talked about Tolstoy's inner conflict kind of causing him to like speak prophetically out of one side of his mouth and then talk about the weaknesses and foibles of human nature out of the other. I can see that definitely being the case here too, right? Talk about if, if he is on the one hand holding to his ideals, but then looks at himself and is concerned with the fact that he isn't living up to them. Well then of course we get lame is, you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Talk about a conflicted set of characters. That's the one the one of the things that I think the musical does beautifully because the point of a musical is music, right? And the the capacity of a melody to move the soul and contain ideas that are unspoken. And so because of that, the spoken words and the characters themselves are a little flat. 
They're a little, they're a little like placeholders and or I'm archetypes. Cosette. Right. <laughs> we said, dang it. I thought we were going to make it through the whole episode. Anyway, <laughs> but that isn't true of the novel, but at least by reputation, all the characters are deliciously conflicted and real. And I'm excited to watch them take on some flesh. That's going to be really cool. So the afterward begins with this paragraph that I just really appreciated and related to and might transition us into the next part of what we want to talk about. So I'm just going to, I'm going to read this first paragraph and you guys can make fun of me because I relate to it. It (laughs) says, true story. True story. I am sitting in Manhattan's Broadhurst Theater watching the 2006 revival of the Les Miserables musical. And toward the end of the first act, the woman beside me, who has been weeping for the better part of the last 45 (laughs) minutes, whispers to me, is this when the guillotine appears? (laughs) Huge dates had been projected onto a screen during the show. 1815, 1823, and 1832. Yet I would be willing to wager that half the audience thought the musical was about the French Revolution, including the human watering can to my left. (laughs) Brutal! (laughs) The French Revolution occurred between 1789 and 1799. Les Miserables? Different century, different barricades. No guillotine. No guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> it's so oh, good. Man, Definitely funny. how I reacted when I was in college and saw it for the first time. I was like, wait a second, but what about like the terror? Isn't this like when the reign of terror starts? And where's the king? And is this yeah. Marie Antoinette? <laughs> well, I think that's a common that's a common confusion in French history because they're always rioting, even in modern day. <laughs> they're always rioting. You try to take a it's metro true. in Paris and you basically can't. Because the trains are always <laughs> off schedule and there are unions all over the place. This something about the culture of France is very revolutionary to this day. <laughs> they're always having a revolution. <laughs> it's easy to get them mixed up. Cause. They're yeah. just looking for a cause. Oh, I'm sure they're, they're there are causes, but you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I loved that that afterward. I thought it was super well written. And he gets into the idea that I've I've sprinkled in a couple of times about about the way that it's penetrated our cultural consciousness. I mean, across the world, really, but specifically in America, it's penetrated our cultural consciousness. And and you can you can enter the story and be moved by it without actually knowing those kinds of details. Mm, without true. knowing that the French it wasn't about the French Revolution and without mm. knowing why it's incredible that Valjean saves Marius in the sewers and so on and so forth, right? But I think part of our project here in this podcast is to deepen our own understanding of this great novel, to make the themes as weighty as they can be, and hopefully to bring all of the rest of you along for that ride as well. Because, uh, man, if that musical can be as moving and life-altering as it has been for me, I can only imagine the experience we're going to have with this novel. So... Would you guys humor me? I created a timeline oh. of French history. That's why we love that it. concerns this time, and it was it was helpful for me. And I wonder if it would be helpful for anyone else. It I've, might just be really boring for everyone it. else. So, very generally speaking, July fourteenth, seventeen eighty nine. That's the beginning of the French Revolution, which came about because Louis XVI was living very profligately. He was spending all the French money. In addition, there was famine and the crops were not coming through. And so the price of bread was rising. And so the people were suffering. But meanwhile, the king and aristocracy were living in in luxury. And so people got upset <laughs> And then there was murdered a all revolution. Them. They got upset and they murdered and they everyone. Murdered everyone. Yes. So it, it came about because they were trying to create this new government 
um, they were trying to convince Louis XVI to turn the monarchy into a constitutional monarchy. And while the actual peaceful political proceedings of that were taking place, violence erupted in the state. So this is when we get the the reign of terror, uh, led by the president Robespierre, who and, and all of the caricatures that are not part of Les Mis happened during this time, but he was executed himself, Robespierre, in 1794. In 1795, there was a creation of the first French bicameral legislature, and Napoleon uh, was a general at the time who helped oppose the royalists who didn't agree with the creation of the directory, which is what this was called. And so he, Napoleon, rose to power as he served the directory until he named himself first consul in 1799 um, during another period of unrest. <laughs> He declared himself emperor in 1804, and then this is when things start becoming important for our purposes. So in April 1814, 10 years after Napoleon declared himself emperor, was the Battle of Leipzig. And this is when things start to intertwine with war and peace, right? 1814, this is after 1812. This is after Napoleon saw his major defeat in Russia, which Tolstoy would say was like, the end of Napoleon, right? But it didn't actually quite happen that way. There were some things that had to happen first, and that began in 1814. It was the largest battle in Europe prior, prior to World War I. And in that battle, the Battle of Leipzig, the Sixth Coalition, which was the sixth iteration of countries who were allied against France, defeated Napoleon and exiled him to Elba. And they restored the Bourbons with Louis XVIII briefly. But then, while Napoleon <laughs> was exiled to Elba, he only lasted not even a year. In February of 1815, he returned. And this is when Les Mis begins, if I understand correctly. So Napoleon has returned from Elba. He begins a hundred days in which he is restored to power. But a hundred days later, on June 18th, 1815, he is finally defeated by the Seventh Coalition led by the British at the Battle of Waterloo. And he is exiled to St. Helena, where he will remain forever. But then they restore. So after he's exiled, they restore the Bourbons again. Louis XVIII comes back. And he reigns until his death. This is a side question. Where has Louis XVIII been in between? That's a good question. I don't know. Probably being sheltered by one of his like royal cousins okay. somewhere else. All right. But he returns and the Bourbons stay in power for quite a while until 1830 when the last Bourbon king, Charles X, is replaced with a liberal constitutional monarchy led by Louis Philippe. And during this time, 1830, Louis Philippe who has replaced the Bourbons, but is still a monarch, a constitutional monarch. And he does such a poor job that the people are not pleased with him. And this is the barricades. That's the <laughs> That's barricades. That's the barricades. <laughs> about which Les Miserables About which is Les Miserables is about. So what they're trying to do, and this is, this is slipshod history work here, but for the sake of understanding, what they're trying to do is do the whole thing where we promote a general over again. Right. What we do about yes. kings in France, kings that we don't like, is we raise barricades, the people rise up, led by someone with sufficient power to control the army and depose the king. And so the students in Les Miserables are trying to do the very same thing with General Lamarck. Right. Right. But instead, 18 years later, in 1848, we get the February Revolution in which Republicans, which I think this is 
this is them winning, right? The Republicans forced Louis Philippe out of power and they elect Louis Napoleon Bonaparte to be their first president of the Second Republic of France. But he eventually declares himself emperor too um, Dang it. in 1851. <laughs> and that is when Victor Hugo is exiled himself and he goes to write Les Miserables in Britain until 1870, which was the beginning of the Third Republic when he returns to France. Okay, so lest you question, by the way, why it is that we're exiling great authors, he was also a politician. In fact, his day job, his main job, was that he was a prominent politician. So the exile makes slightly more sense in that context. At that time, he was more known for his politics than he was for being an author. Yeah, His politics and his plays. He was a playwright, too. So then, on the one hand, the events take place during Louis Philippe's reign, right? When they're trying to do the whole, let's bring a major general up and and kill the king and all that good stuff. They tried to do that over again. doesn't pan out so well. But then he's actually writing it from a handful of years down the road as the the new republic has been established. Right. Those are good. Well, no, he's writing it when Napoleon III was reigning, when it looks like they had returned to an empire. But then... It, it's published at the end of that when everyone is dissatisfied with his reign. And we're about to elect a president. And yes, yeah. and so it kind of, the progressive sentiment that was brewing kind of helped with the publicity of the book. And he was greeted as a hero. Victor Hugo was greeted as a hero when he did return upon the establishment of the Third Republic. Anyway, that's all confusing. I got confused as I read that. I was confused while I wrote it. The major points, the major points though, are A, this is not the French Revolution, but the French Revolution is necessary background because the turmoil in France is what leads to the gravity of this situation that we find in the novel, right? Well, yeah, just turmoil in France might be like the main thing to get out the of that. The watchword. There was like, it just, after the revolution, it was just chaos and a constant turning over of power and a vacillation between the royalists and then the republicans but it was always like somewhere in between they tried several iterations of a president and a constitutional monarchy and then eventually someone would get frustrated and declare themselves emperor again it just it was really messy (laughs) and kind of a through line regardless of who was in power at that moment the common man was struggling with poverty and destitution and yeah. all of the yeah. things that come along with the the desperation of of being ultimately poor. So Well, yes. And then one of the other to add to that very idea, Paris is one of the largest, if not the largest city in Europe at the time and notoriously crowded. Right? It's the borders of the city itself hadn't expanded all that much and the people the concentration of the population had skyrocketed. And so we're talking about one of the dirtiest, most poop-filled cities. <laughs> Ever. And that actually figures prominently in this novel, right? The the complexity of the sewers and the layout of the sewers. I mean, it's legendary about the novel that that is a huge focus. And I think that's that comes directly from the living conditions that Megan's talking about. Everybody's packed in like sardines in this in this city that's too small for its population. And and that that lends uh, desperation to every character's story. Yeah, and just every politician that rose to power ended up being concerned more with his own status than with his platform. Like hmm. even when they said they wanted to help the people, it just, it became a, a battle of power and will instead of about the people. Emily, I'm impressed. Yeah, no, I didn't think it was no. confusing. I thought it was really helpful. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And I definitely yeah, want you to helpful. put that in the show notes because I'm sure our listeners feel as I do that I need that timeline up somewhere. 
Maybe I want to print that off so that as I'm reading along, I can reference. Dates don't stick in my mind very well, but I want to see at least the the trends, the back and forth swing of the pendulum here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good for sure. So I'll I'll do what what I did with War and Peace and recommend that if you are feeling a little overwhelmed as you look at the through two and a half, almost <laughs> three inch thick book that we that we're gonna <laughs> go go ahead and watch watch a movie, watch a film adaptation. There's that a couple one of good was ones. Really good. Yeah, there's so uh, the the musical on screen starring Hugh Jackman was really good. A faithful representation of the of the of the Broadway musical at least. But then there's also a dramatization of the novel starring. Help me name. What's uh, his name? Lily Collins, Dominic West. Dominic West, West is who I was thinking um, as Valjean. Yeah. yeah, and that's. I think it was a. I think it was a BBC oh, production. Yeah, it was, uh, and the it big was our, guy. It was our who's, guy. Who's that guy? What's his name? Josh. Oh, uh, Josh O'Connor. Uh, Josh O'Connor. O'Connor. Yep. There he is. He's great. It was. was um, yeah. Who's our man? Who's the guy who did Born Peace? It's the same guy. Same director. Oh really? Shoot. Yeah. Same director. Andrew Davies. Yep. Yeah. Andrew Davies. Okay. Well, it's it is also good. It doesn't have quite the. Quite the weight is War and Peace, maybe, but is is really good for getting you an overview of the story and getting you into the characters a little bit. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, go and watch. It might be worthwhile to just provide a couple of like show notes. Some some alterations are taking place in our scheduling that it might be helpful to talk about. The first of which is that Megan and I, every four weeks, teach a junior high together and it takes up the whole week. And during those weeks, we have a really hard time getting around to recording an episode of How to Eat Elephant. So, Because we lose our voices from teaching the same (laughs) class over and over and over again. (laughs) It's It's fine. We're fine. It's hard to fit into the schedule. It's all fine. (laughs) The school year has started. Everything is fine. But we've decided to just recognize what's happening. And instead of getting behind or getting off track, we have worked it into the schedule. So there is always going to be like three weeks on and one week off when it comes to the release of episodes at least to the best of our ability hopefully this will help us stay on track this might be helpful because the readings unlike for war and peace are going to be longer sometimes much longer (laughs) so there'll always be a chance to catch up coming around the corner if you get behind excellent i love that and we've posted a schedule up through christmas on the website. At which point we'll reevaluate. And if we have hue and cry, for example, from those of you who think the reading assignments are too long, maybe we'll shorten them for you a little bit. Who knows? We'll see. What <laughs> but happens. mostly we're responding to a different hue and cry. Those of you who were with us for <laughs> War and Peace, we read five chapters at a time and we were very like religiously faithful to the five chapter <laughs> limit. That's and true. sometimes five chapters was not very many pages and we didn't seem to be making any progress. So how many months did it take see. us to get through war and peace? Two years. It, it was, was two, two full years. years. Yeah. We read that book okay. for two years. Yeah. We're not going <laughs> to, we're not going to be in limbs for two years, guys. This is no. our solemn promise. I don't even you. think it'll take a full year if we're able to, to stay on track. That terrifies me. Okay. <laughs> so <be> great. <laughs> I am so excited. You guys, I'm so excited. If we can work it out in post, we should just one day more should play as we go out of, the, <laughs> out of the podcast, but I'm going to, I am going to dismiss you all to go and begin reading this wonderful novel. I'm so excited to flip it open and get started. Emily, what is the reading assignment for week one here? We're reading the first chapter. So we are beginning. What's the first book? Cosette? No, Fontaine. Fontaine. Fontaine is the first book and we're reading chapter one An upright man. And so there is a week off because Megan and I are teaching junior high. And then in two weeks, we'll begin. 
Excellent. Quick note, you guys, do not skip the the tiny little paragraph that begins book one. It's really thematically significant, and we're probably going to start by talking about that. So don't just move into book one. Go ahead and start with the little uh, Hauteville House 1862 paragraph. Be, a, be a completist about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is actually Victor Hugo speaking. It's his little forward to his own novel, and it's super thematically rich. Hmm. Sweet. Well, friends, thank you as always for your insights. And thank you listeners for joining us at the very beginning here of another quest. And the quest is to add Victor Hugo's Les Miserables to our has been read list. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next time around on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.